Alright, my little ones. You have your pajamas on. Got your teeth brushed. Now lay down. Grab that lovey of yours. If you're feeling a little chilly, take that blanket and wrap it around you and cozy up. So today's story is a good one, as always. A little different than the norm, but I think you'll like this one as much as I did. So let's begin. Uncle David's Nonsensical Story About Giants and Fairies Written by Catherine Sinclair Pie crust and pasty crust, that was the wall. The windows were made of black puddings and white, and slated with pancakes. You ne'er saw the like. In the days of yore, children were not all such clever, good, sensible people as they are now. Lessons were then considered rather a plague, sugar plums were still in demand, holidays continued yet in fashion, and toys were not then made to teach mathematics, nor storybooks to give instruction in chemistry and navigation. These were very strange times, and there existed in the, at that period a very idle, greedy, naughty boy, such as we never hear of in the present day. His papa and mama were no matter who, and he lived, no matter where. His name was Master Notebook, and he seemed to think his eyes were made for nothing but to stare out of the windows, and his mouth for no other purpose but to eat. This young gentleman hated lessons like mustard, both of which brought tears into his eyes, and during school hours he sat gazing at his books, pretending to be busy while his mind wandered away to wish impatiently for dinner, and to consider where he could get the nicest pies, pastry, ices, and jellies, while he smacked his lips at the very thought of them. I think he must have been first cousin to Peter Gray, but that is not perfectly certain. Whenever Master Notebook spoke, it was always to ask for something, and you might continually hear him say in a whining tone of voice, Papa, may I take this piece of cake? Aunt Sarah, will you give me an apple? Mama, do send me the whole of that plum pudding. Indeed. Very frequently, when we, he did not get permission to gourmandize, this naughty glutton helped himself without leave. Even his dreams were like his waking hours, for he had often a horrible nightmare about lessons thinking he was smothered with Greek lexions or pelted out of the school with a shower of English grammars, while one night he fancied himself sitting down to devour an enormous plump cake, and all of a sudden became transformed into a Latin dictionary. One afternoon, Master Notebook, having played trot all day from school, was lolling on his mother's favorite sofa in the drawing room, with his leather boots tucked up on the satin cushions and nothing to do but to suck a few oranges, and nothing to think of but how much sugar to put on them, when suddenly an event took place, which filled him with astonishment. A sound of soft music stole into the room, 
becoming louder and louder the longer he listened, till at length, in a few moments afterwards, a large hole burst open in the wall of his room, and there stepped into his presence two magnificent fairies, just arrived from their castles in the air, to pay him a visit. They had traveled all the way on purpose to have some conversation with Master Nobook, and immediately introduced themselves in a very ceremonious manner. The fairy Do-Nothing was gorgeously dressed with a wreath of flaming gas around her head, a robe of gold tissue, a necklace of rubies, and a bouquet in her hand of glittering diamonds. Her cheeks were roughed in their eye very eyes, her teeth were set in gold, and her hair was of the most brilliant purple. In short, so fine and fashionable looking a fairy never was seen in a drawing room before. The fairy Teachall, who followed next, was simply dressed in white muslin, with bunches of natural flowers in her light brown hair, and she carried in her hand a few neat small books, which Master Nobook looked at with a shudder of aversion. The two fairies now informed him that they were very often invited large parties of children to spend some time at their palaces, but as they lived in quite an opposite direction, it was necessary for their young guests to choose which would be best to visit first. Therefore, now they had come to inquire of Master Nobook, whom he thought it would be most agreeable to accompany on the present occasion. In my house, said the fairy Teachall, speaking with a very sweet smile and a soft, pleasing voice, you shall be taught to find pleasure in every sort of exertion, for I delight in activity and diligence. My young friends rise at seven every morning and amuse themselves with working in a beautiful garden of flowers, rearing whatever fruit they wish to eat, visiting among the poor, associating pleasantly together, studying the arts and sciences, and learning to know the world in which they live, and to fulfill the purposes for which they have been brought into it. In short, all of our amusements tend to some useful object, either for our own improvement or the good of others, and you will grow wiser, better, and happier every day you remain in the palace of knowledge. But in the castle needless where I live, interrupted the fairy do-nothing, rudely pushing her companion aside with an angry contemptuous look, we never think of exerting ourselves for anything. You may put your head in your pocket, in your hands, in your sides, as long as you choose to stay. No one has ever asked a question that he may be spared the trouble of answering. We lead the most fashionable life imaginable. No, Nobody speaks to anybody. Each of my visitors is quite an exclusive, and sits with his back to as many of the company as possible, and the most comfortable armchair that can be contrived. There, if you only do so good as to take the trouble of wishing for anything, it is yours, without even turning an eye around to look where it comes from. Dresses are provided for the most magnificent kind, which go on themselves, without you having the smallest annoyance with either buttons or strings, games which you can play without an effort of thought and dishes dressed by a French cook, smoking hot under your nose, from morning till night, while any rain we have is either made of sherry, brandy, lemonade, or lavender water, 
and in winter, it generally snows iced punch for an hour during the forno forenoon. Nobody need be told which fairy Master Notebook preferred, and quite charmed at his own good fortune in receiving so agreeable an invitation. He eagerly gave his hand to the splendid new acquaintance, who promised him so much pleasure and ease, and gladly proceeded in a carriage lined with velvet, stuffed with downy pillows, and drawn by white milk swans to that magnificent residence, Castle Needless, which was lighted by a thousand windows during the day, and by a million of lamps every night. Here, Master Nobook enjoyed a constant holiday and a constant feast, while a beautiful lady covered with jewels was ready to tell him stories from morning till night, and servants waited to pick him, his, uh, pick up his playthings if they fell, or to draw out his purse or his pocket handkerchief when he wished to use them. Thus, Master Nobook lay dozing for hours and days on richly embroidered cushions, never stirring from his place but admiring the view of trees covered with the richest burned almonds, grottoes of sugar candy, and jadeau of champagne, a wide sea which tasted of sugar instead of salt, and a bright clear pond filled with goldfish that let themselves be caught whenever that he pleased. Nothing could be more complete, and yet, very strange to say, Master Nobook did not seem particularly happy. This appears exceedingly unreasonable when so much trouble was taken to please him, but the truth is that every day he became more fretful and peevish. No sweet meats were worth the trouble of eating, nothing was pleasant to play at, and in the end he wished it were possible to sleep all day as well as all night. Not a hundred miles from the fairy Do-Nothing's palace, there lived a most cruel monster named the giant Snap-em-Up, who looked. When he stood up, like the tall steeple of great church, raising his head so high that he could peep over the loftiest mountains, and was obliged to climb up a ladder to climb his own hair. Every morning regularly, the prodigiously great giant walked around the world before breakfast for an appetite. After which he made tea in a large lake, used the sea as a slop basin, and boiled his kettle on Mount Vesuvius. He lived in great style, and his dinners were most magnificent, consisting very often of an elephant roasted whole, ostrich patties, a tiger smothered in onions, stewed lions, and whale soup. But for a side dish, his greatest favorite consisted of little boys, as fat as possible fried in crumbs of bread, with plenty of pepper and salt. No children were so well fed, or in such good condition for eating, as those in the fairy do-nothing's garden, who was a very particular friend of the giant snap -em ups and who sometimes laughingly said she would give him a license, and call her own gardens his preserve, because she allowed him to help himself whenever he pleased, to as many of her visitors as he chose without taking the trouble even to count them, and in return for such extreme civility, 
the giant very frequently invited her to dinner. Snap-em-up's favorite sport was to see how many brace of little boys he could bag in the morning. So when passing along the streets, he peeped into all the drawing rooms without having occasion to get upon tiptoe and picked up every young gentleman who was idly looking out of the windows and even a few occasionally who were playing trot from school but busy children always seemed to somehow be out of his reach. One day, when Master Notebook felt even more lazy, more idle, and more miserable than ever, he lay beside a perfect mountain of toys and cakes, wondering what to wish for next, and hating the very sight of everything and everybody. At last, he gave so loud a yawn of weariness and disgust that his jaw nearly fell out of joint, and then he sighed so deeply the giant Snap-em-up heard the sound as he passed along the road after breakfast and instantly stepped into the garden with his glass at his eye to see what was the matter. Immediately observing a very large, fat, overgrown boy as round as a dumpling lying on a bed of roses, he gave a cry of delight, followed by a gigantic peal of laughter, which was heard three miles off. And picking up Master Notebook between his finger and thumb, with a pinch that nearly broke his ribs. He carried him rapidly towards his own castle, while the fairy do-nothing laughingly shook her head as he passed away. That little man does me great credit. He only has been fed for a week and is as fat as a prize ox. What a dainty morsel he will be. When do you dine today, in case I should have time to look in upon you? On reaching home, the giant immediately hung up Master Notebook by the hair of his head, on a prodigious hook in the larder, having first taken some large lumps of nasty sweat, forcing them down his throat to make him still fatter, then stirring the fire that he might be almost melted with heat to make his liver grow larger. On a shelf quite near, Master Notebook perceived the dead bodies of six other boys, whom he remembered to have seen fattening in the fairy do-nothing's garden, while he recollected how some of them had rejoiced at the thoughts of leading a long, useless, idle life with no one to please but themselves. The enormous cook now seized hold of Master Notebook, brandishing her knife with an aspect of horrible detrimation, intending to kill him, while he took the trouble of screaming and kicking in the most desperate manner when the giant turned gravely round and said that as pigs were considered a much greater dainty when whipped to death than killed in any other way, he meant to see whether children might not be improved by it also. Therefore, she might leave the great hog of a boy till he had time to try the experiment, especially as his own appetite would be improved by the exercise. This was a dreadful prospect for the unhappy prisoner, but meantime it prolonged his life a few hours as he was immediately hung up again in the larder, and left to himself. There, in torture of mind and body, like a fish upon a hook, the wretched boy began at last to reflect seriously upon his former ways, and to consider what a happy home he might have had, if he could only 
have been satisfied with business and pleasure succeeding each other. Like day and night, while lessons might have come in a pleasant sauce to his play hours, and his play hours as a sauce to his lessons. In the midst of many reflections, which were all very sensible, though rather too late, Master Notebook's attention became attracted by the sound of many voices laughing, talking, and singing, which caused him to turn his eyes in a new direction. When for the first time, he observed that the fairy Teachall's garden lay upon a beautiful sloping bank not far off. There a crowd of merry, noisy, rosy-cheeked boys were busily employed, and seemed happier than the day was long. While poor Master Notebook watched them during his own miserable hours, envying the enjoyment with which they ranked the flower borders, gathered the fruit, carried baskets of vegetables to the poor, worked with carpenter's tools, drew pictures, shot with bows and arrows, played at cricket, and then sat in the sunny arbors learning their tasks, or talking agreeably together, till at length, a dinner bell having been rung, the whole party sat merrily down with a hearty appetite and cheerful good humor to an entertainment of plain roast meat and pudding, where the fairy teachall presided herself and helped her guests moderately to as much as was good for each. Large tears rolled down the cheeks of Master Notebook while watching this scene, and remembering that if he had known what was best for him, he might have been as happy as the happiest of these ex excellent boys, instead of suffering ennui and weariness, as he had done at the fairy do-nothings, ending in a miserable death. But his attention was soon after most alarmingly roused by hearing the giant snap him up again in conversation with his cook, who said that if he wished for a good large dish of scalloped children at dinner, it would be necessary to catch a few more, as those he had already provided could scarcely be a mouthful. As the giant kept very fashionable hours, and always waited dinner for himself until nine o'clock, there was still plenty of time. So, with a loud grumble with the trouble, he seized a large basket in his hand, and set off at a rapid pace towards the fairy Teachall's garden. It was very seldom that Snap-em-up ventured to think of foraging in this direction, as he never once succeeded in carrying off a single captive from the enclosure. It was so well fortified and so bravely defended, but on this occasion, being desperately hungry, he felt as bold as a lion, and walked with outstretched hands straight towards the fairy Teachall's dinner table, taking such prodigious strides that he seemed almost as if he would trample on himself. A cry of consternation arose the instant this tremendous giant appeared, and as usual on such occasions, when he had made the same attempt before, a dreadful battle took place. Fifty active little boys bravely flew upon the enemy, armed with their dinner knives, and looked like a hornet nest, stinging him in every direction, till he roared with pain, and would have run away, but the fairy Teachall, seeing his intention, rushed forward with the carving knife and brandishing its high over her head, the most courageously stabbed him into the heart. If a great mountain had fallen to the earth, 
it would have seemed like nothing in comparison with the giant Snap-em-up who crushed two or three houses to powder beneath him and upset several fine monuments that were there to have people remember forever. But all this would have seemed scarcely worth mentioning had it not been for a still greater event which occurred on the occasion, no less than the death of the fairy Do-Nothing, who had been indignantly looking on at this great battle without taking the trouble to interfere, or even to care who was the victorious. But being also lazy about running away, when the giant fell, his sword came with so violent a stroke on her head that she instantly expired. Thus, luckily, for the whole world, the fairy Teachall got possession of immense property, which she proceeded without delay to make the best use of in her power. In the first place, however, she lost no time in liberating Master Notebook from his book hook in the larder, and gave him a lecture on activity, moderation, and good conduct which he never afterwards forgot. And it was astonishing to see the change that took place immediately in his whole thought and actions. From this very hour, Master Nobook became the most diligent, active, happy boy in the fairy Teachall's garden. And on returning home a month afterwards, he astonished all the masters of, at school by his extraordinary reform, reformation. The most difficult lessons were a pleasure to him. He scarcely ever stirred without a book in his hand never lay on a sofa again, would scarcely even sit on a chair with a back to it, but preferred a three-legged stool, detested holidays, never thought any exer exertion a trouble, preferred climbing over the top of a hill to creeping around the bottom, always ate the plainest food in very small quantities, joined a temperance society, and never tasted a morsel till he had worked very hard and got an appetite. Not long after this, an old uncle, who had formerly been ashamed of Master Nobook's indol indolence and gluttony, became so pleased at the wonderful change that on his death he left him a magnificent estate, desiring that he should take his name. Therefore, instead of being any longer one of the Nobook family, he is now called Sir, Timoth Sir Timothy Bluestocking, a pattern to the whole count country round, for the good he does to everyone, and especially for his extraordinary activity, appearing as if he could do twenty things at once. Though generally very good-natured and agreeable, Sir Timothy is occasionally observed in a violent passion, laying about him with his walking-stick in the most terrific manner, and beating little boys within an inch of their lies, but not in on inquiry. It invariably appears that he has found them out to be lazy, idle, or greedy, for all the industrious boys in the parish are sent to get employment from him, while he assures them that they are far happier breaking stones on the road than if they were sitting idly in a drawing room with nothing to do. Sir Timothy cares very little for poetry in general, but the following are his favorite verses which he has placed over the chimney piece at a school that he built for the poor. And every scholar is obliged, the very day he begins his education, to learn them. Some people complain they have nothing to do, and time passes slowly away. They saunter about, 
with no objection in view, and long for the day, end of the day. In vain are the trifles and toys they desire, for nothing they truly enjoy. Of trifles and toys and amusements they tire, for want of some useful employ. Although for transgression the ground was accursed, yet gratefully man must allow. Twas really a blessing which doomed him at first to live by the sweat of his brow. The End So, it is better to work hard than to get everything you would want without working for it. Sounds kind of weird, but that's just the way our Heavenly Father created us. That we love one another by serving and helping one another. That means helping mom, helping your sisters, helping everyone in your family, and even helping those that you don't know. And in turn, what happens is you become happier. It sounds like it shouldn't work that way, but that's just how it is. So, I leave that with you. So, time to close your eyes. Take a deep breath. (sighs) Know that I love you. And I'll see you in the morning. Good night.